Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody and welcome to Scattered. Uh, this week we are looking at various parts of uh, Luke 22 and 23. Lots of four different little sections, but we'd really encourage you to read Luke, the whole of Luke 22 and 23 before uh, looking at the four little sections. And uh, the four sections we are looking at are chapter 22, verses 47 to 53, which is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Then the same chapter, verses 66 to 71, which is the trial of Jesus before the Jewish council. Then we skip to chapter 23, verses 13 to 25, where Pilate effectively says he will punish and then release Jesus because there's no evidence of anything against him, uh, but the crowd demand his crucifixion. And then finally, we're looking at verses 32 to 49, which is the crucifixion and death of Jesus outside of Jerusalem. So we're looking at these sections today and looking at how can Jesus be the conquering king and the suffering servant at the same time? So Ooh. first question, yeah. Da-da. Question one, ladies, what does uh, the first section, chapter 22, verses 47 to 53, tell us or show us about um, the various people in this scene the disciples the crowd and jesus i really love peter in this scene like that whole fiery he's in there he has such a strong view of his own ability to defend jesus but yeah i was really struck by it in a like we we really love him for that don't we and yet jesus is the one who's been up all night who's been praying and seeking his father's will peter's been snoozing through the night and he just is a really good example here of somebody who just acts on impulse. So he follows his impulses rather than... There's a, there's a real contrast with Jesus, isn't there, who is in control, whereas Peter is just acting out of his sort of feelings. And, yeah, I just was really challenged and helped by that, that Jesus is the one who's been seeking his father's face all night and so has that confident assurance, even in the face of this sort of awful betrayal and yet Peter is all action and yet and so often I, I relate to that I want to be all action and yet that's not always God's call is it on our lives it must have been really confusing for them though right because they're still not really expecting Jesus Jesus to be arrested and killed so like and and it's not long I was trying to find it chapter 22 just a few verses before talking about swords and in verse 36 if you don't have a sword sell your cloak and buy one and that's Jesus talking to the disciples I feel like it just must have been so confusing for them and scary really scary that suddenly their leader the the one who they've come to love and trust is potentially going to be taken away from them plus I'm terrible when I've just woken up I don't know about you but I think Peter's probably a little like post nap, post nappy, and just does the first thing that comes to his mind. But yeah, you're right. There's definitely a contrast between that and like Jesus, who's ready for this and very calm. Um, and then there's the crowd, and there's so many of them. I guess they've come as if Jesus is some kind of military leader who needs suppressing. So they've come. It says in verse. 52 they've come with swords and clubs as if you know they're expecting a fight so it's just yeah it's very tense it's very interesting the different parties but you do get this flavor that Jesus is in control right from the beginning like verse 53 every day I was with you in the temple courts you did not lay a hand on me but this is your hour 
when darkness reigns like it's very ominous isn't it and it's so sad as well because Judas was with him the whole time and has heard all his teaching has seen all the different miracles that we've talked about in previous weeks just seen him do incredible things and yet he is the one that betrays him for money for it's it's so painful isn't it just not just a stranger doing this but one of the the 12 intimate friends that he's called and chosen yeah and the intimacy of the kiss is just horrible isn't it it's such a intimate way for judas to pretend he loves jesus and yet be betraying him i was struck just by jesus's kindness as well even in all of the drama you know because peter or one of them has struck someone's ear off and jesus is touches the man's ear and heals him so even in this moment when jesus knows what's ahead he still reaches out in kindness and heals it's interesting as well isn't it how jesus is really keen to stop it becoming a violent two-way thing he's he knows that he's innocent and it would be so easy wouldn't it for the um it all to go wrong if it just became a fight between two groups of friends and so yeah he's sort of yeah his tranquility and his kindness are really remarkable aren't they and and actually yeah the disciples do then see okay this isn't going to be we're not we're not in this for a fight Mm. yeah and I just loved how you can see here how Jesus isn't a helpless victim in the hands of greater powers you know he's already said I know when I get to Jerusalem this is going to happen and yet he still willingly went and then when the crowd's there with clubs and swords he doesn't try to protect himself he doesn't lash out he doesn't let anyone else jump to his defense on his behalf jesus is totally in control the whole time and that that little last section where it says where jesus says this is your hour when darkness reigns that's so helpful isn't it in that god has appointed this as the hour for you to do this and so in this time period you are allowed to do this but when that is over it's over So, yeah, I find that a really helpful sort of, like you were saying, Helen, like God has appointed this hour for you to be able to do this. And you're only able to because of his. And it's, yeah, it's reminiscent of the beginning of Job, isn't it? That Satan's on a leash. Yeah. So Jesus is then taken away. um, And we we, the section that we miss is the bit where uh, Peter denies Jesus. And then Jesus is mocked. Before being brought before the elders and the chief priests and the scribes in verses 66 to 71. And in this little section, they ask him to confirm that what they've heard about him, um, what he's claiming to be, whether or not that's true. He doesn't answer them directly, but they find him guilty of blasphemy. But at the end of this, only, only the Romans can give out the death penalty. So in the next little section, we'll see that he's sent to Pilate. But uh, why is what Jesus claims about himself such an issue for this this um, assembly? I was thinking kind of in two ways. I mean, he's claiming to be the Christ or the Messiah, which they just think is blasphemy. They think, you know, this would have like a direct claim on them um, if, it, you know, if it was true. So I guess to them, this is just makes them so angry but I guess also they need him almost to claim to be the Christ because 
if they do, then it kind of will give them reason to bring in the Romans. It will give them kind of a political basis to accuse Jesus. And by that, I mean, because the Romans would have been afraid of some kind of political uprising. And therefore, if the Jews can say, well, he's claiming to be the Messiah, who will lead the Jews in uprising and defeat you, then they know that that will bring action. And why doesn't Jesus answer them directly? I mean, he could. He doesn't, does he? He could say, actually. Yes. I read something really interesting that actually... He, what he's interested in is their response still, even at this point, Jesus wants them to see the truth. And so it's interesting what he says, isn't it? Um, he's basically asking them what they think because he's really still trying to draw out of them. Um, could Messiah be different? Because their, their view of what Messiah is, is so political. And so co- it's going to be the conquering force that overtakes Rome. And so they're so entrenched in that view that they can't begin to believe that Jesus would be because he doesn't fit their stereotype of what Messiah should be. But I, yeah, I feel like the section where he talks about the son of man is a prophecy from Daniel, isn't it? That um, links the Messiah to be the one who judges and they know that. And then he goes on to say that he will be offended and ruling and reigning in judgment, which is, really hard for them to hear and that at that point they lose it don't they a little bit the other notes were helpful on this because it was talking about how as jesus turns it on them like shifts the focus onto what they say that he is the they were saying that jesus is implying that it really is them who are on trial um and i liked that like through jesus throughout his ministry we saw it with Uh, Simon the Pharisee at his house when he turned it around from you know it's not this woman who is treating me inappropriately it's you like he does that all the time and by saying in verse 70 they say are you the son of God he replied you say that I am and then they say why do we need any more testimony he's like it's yeah again flipping it this is you guys on trial not me like now it seems like I'm on trial, but actually in the big picture of things, this is your trial. Mm. I think I think we've also mentioned this in previous weeks when we've met with the Pharisees and scribes that, you know, they're so, their world is so fixed on themselves that they find it really hard to shift to recognizing that actually this man before them is the real king he is the son of god they can't they don't want to see that because at the moment the the way things work are to their benefit the people are coming to them to be made clean they're coming to them to be judged they are the kings at the moment they are the ones who are ruling over their own lives and ruling over other people so they can't see this when jesus comes he conflict he goes against their own pride and their own idea of the way things work. And I think that's similar for a lot of people. That's a really hard thing to, to when we get faced with Christ, to be able to actually hear him out and listen to what his words are saying. Yeah, I always remember Jumpy actually saying, you know, when you're talking to people who have a lot of objections to Jesus, so often it's like, oh, I don't like what he says about this thing. I don't like what he says about this thing. 
And Jumpy's always like, no, 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 we're not going to talk about any of that until you decide who you think Jesus is. Because actually Jesus has presented all the evidence he needs to. God has done that already. It's here in his word. And so now it's up to you to think about who he is, not what you don't like about him or not what your objections are. Because if he is who he says he is, then that changes absolutely everything else. Yeah, because we, you know, we put Jesus on trial, don't we, sometimes in our own kind of minds, like, oh, he's this or he's done this. But it's interesting, isn't it? Again, just being reminded that actually, if you flip that round, then kind of we, you know, we are on trial before him, like in the way that we, yeah, in a way that we probably don't realise. And one day we are going to meet him face to face. And if we have put him on trial in our lives and rejected him, then there is going to come a time at which he has the option to reject us, which is kind of terrifying, but also amazing in the light of what we're reading, which is what he's done about that problem. I guess we've just seen all the way through Luke, haven't we, in all these little snapshots, how Jesus sees into people's hearts and reveals what's true about their hearts and the motives that are behind what they see. And I guess this little trial, like we've been saying, is another picture of that, that Jesus sees the hearts of these guys and that they're not seeking truth. They're just trying to protect their power. So, yeah, it, yeah, it's mm. really helpful. The trial is flipped, isn't it? Totally. But the beauty of it is, yes, he reveals what's in everybody's hearts, but he's still saying, come to me. He's still saying, come mm. to me. Okay, so let's then, we then skip on to chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. Um, In the bit in between this, the Jewish council decide that he's, effectively, he's guilty of blasphemy because he hasn't denied that he is a divine being. And so because they can't issue the death penalty, they ship him off to see Pilate, who is a Roman governor. Um, who then decides to send him off to Herod, who is the Jewish regional governor, because in a political and diplomatic move. Um, And then Herod basically mocks Jesus, sends him back to Pilate. And in this next section, see that Pilate finds absolutely nothing worthy of the death penalty. But rather than setting Jesus free, he washes his hands of the whole situation and does what the crowd wants him to do. So... Ladies, why does Pilate do what he does? I saw for the first time when I was looking at this that it's really important, isn't it, that Jesus is declared innocent because of all the prophecies of Jesus needing to be the spotless lamb so that he can take Mm -hmm. our place. And so I saw that so clearly here that actually Pilate's, um, again, under God's authority, isn't he? in that he declares for everybody to hear and see there's no fault in this man. So, yeah, I think it's part of God's bigger purposes, isn't it, in declaring Jesus innocent in such a public court? Yeah, I think we're meant to see the injustice at every step of this trial, in inverted commas, or trials. I think we're meant to see the huge injustice of it. And again, here with Pilate, and the kind of show he puts on to show, oh, well, I'm innocent of this man, this innocent man's death. Like, it's just, I think we're meant to feel, again, how in- unjust this is, that the innocent um, is going to be put to death. Yeah, it's just, it stinks. It's such a strong man in the eyes of the world. <laughs> like, he is a, what's his title? Like, a 
governor. Is he a governor? Um, Pontius. And yet he... (laughs) He can, he can't he's not able to release he's not able to save Jesus you know he's a man with power yet he's under the power of people he can't he's almost you know who's in control of the situation not Pilate but Jesus is and I think that's incredible to see the thing I loved about the the richness of this just this is my Hermione moment, everyone. Barabbas's name actually means so Bar Abbas actually means son of father, and so the switch of son of father, the murderer, the killer, the um, person who's been leading insurrections, for the true son of the father, <laughs> that, that that swapping of the true son of the father stepping into the place of person called son of the father who had who was by no means innocent and actually had been found guilty and was due to be punished it's just so beautiful i just love how and i think it just demonstrates again everything was planned everything was in control it seems like chaos but it is always god's sovereignty and it's always there that's so encouraging isn't it when we apply that into our hardest circumstances or the times when our lives feel so out of control and like they're being pulled by all sorts of different powers it's so helpful to read this isn't it and think on the hardest day in human history when the most innocent man was handed over to die god was in control and that's true just as true isn't it in our lives when things feel unfair and out of control and there's such comfort there we move on to this last little section chapter 23 verses 30 to 49 where um jesus is crucified next to two other men and then we see almost like the end of a film we see lots of little snapshots those with a section with the soldiers who are mocking him and gambling away his clothes one of the one of the criminals confesses faith in jesus the darkness comes curtains torn in two jesus dies and then we have the centurion who the last little snapshot is the crowds and his acquaint jesus's acquaintances looking on what do you think is the significance why does why does luke share with us all these little bits well um luke mentioned at the beginning of the his book this book to theophilus that he wanted to give people um evidence and a clear orderly account and here he purposely goes from one bit to another because he's showing how over and over again uh, Jesus is fulfilling what scripture has said. Um, and he uses so many different snapshots to show us places in the Old Testament that this promise has been made there and this is being fulfilled now, right now. And we can see that with the soldiers casting lots for his garments. That's found in Psalm 22, verse 18. Just the pointing back to scripture. So the darkness represents um, oh. this lament and judgment, which is uh, can be found in Amos and in Exodus. Um, and, and then also just the, yeah, just so many... Um, examples of reminding us over and over again that this has been planned from the beginning of time 
and Jesus and God the Father are totally in control in all these moments. Mm. I just love um, seeing that the character of Jesus uh, through this section. I know there's significance kind of prophetically, but also I think his mercy, um, kind of the forgiveness that he shows, like verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I just think that's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. These people are putting him to death in the most incredibly painful way possible. And yet Jesus turns around in mercy. And then he, you know, the way he deals so gently and kindly with the criminal next to him on the cross who pleads for mercy. And, you know, he's drawing people into his kingdom right to the end. And then uh, at the end as well, like as he dies, he cries out to God in faith. He says in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, um, which is actually from the psalm, Psalm 31 verse 5 um which is like um it's meant to be the prayer of of someone righteous um who's suffering who's entrusting himself into god's hand um and it's it yeah just the way he does all of these things just i think accentuates how how wonderful he is and how kind and how loving and still how much he desires for sinners to come to repentance um yeah i just feel like there's points in our lives like when we suffer or go through yeah a difficult period or in lots of pain and stuff that really bring out what's in inside of us and often for me it's just ugly stuff whereas when jesus suffers it's just he's beautiful to the core and i think i guess as well as we look at his crucifixion question and and um, his death one of the questions is you know why did all of this happen why because he didn't have to so why and i was going to ask you but actually what i'm going to do is i'm going to read isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 to um 53 verse 12 just because i think it gives us the answers and God's word could be is better than our words could ever be. So I'm just going to read this is um, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 um, until the end of chapter 53. Behold, my this is God talking. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he who put him to grief. When his soul, his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors transgressors yet he bore the sin of many makes intercession for the transgressors i think that's the <laughs> the why is in there but um you know to bear our iniquities to to make intercession for us and so i guess final questions ladies is just what does this show us about god and what does it mean for us as we've been struck recently here um we have a friend who's um who saw um his son almost die and um he at that moment it was like wow god was god the father was willing to let his son be you know we we're i think we're all parents here but like we are grieved by any harm that's caused to our yet like God the Father seeing his son go through this, yet willingly let him go through this because of his love for us is, yeah, just incredible that not only, yeah, does Christ love us by obeying in his obedience doing this, but just the whole um, picture of the Trinity in this, of, um, yeah, I guess the Spirit sustaining um, Jesus while he was on the cross and just all for um, his desire to save um, sinners and those who have yeah done done wrong. And I guess for me this study uncover is especially aimed at people for whom like reading this might be the first time and it might seem like incredibly barbaric and um bloody yeah you do you do ask yourself like why I guess the answer is that that sin is really really serious like I think we we often gloss over our sin don't we and say oh well I'm not as bad as that person or well you know I've never murdered anyone and yet you know the bible tells us that every single person no one is righteous not even one um as in no created human is righteous, not even one. And so therefore all of us are cut off from God. And that's just that it's so serious and so awful. And so the 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 penalty of that is awful. Like watching Jesus go through this um is it should be hard to read. I don't think it's something that we should find an easy read. Um, and I think we should ask why. And yet the amazing truth of it is that in in punishing his son God's justice and goodness is kind of at its peak, isn't it? And his love 
like how much must he love us um in order to bring us back from that state so i guess yeah for me it just reminds me of like the seriousness of my sin but also the seriousness of god's love like he seriously loves us to this extent and i just think it's at the core of our faith isn't it and it's something we need to come back to every day so i agree with everything you've just said and while i was looking at this i read this great john stock quote that says sin is man substituting himself for god but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And I thought that is so great. You know, we spend so much of our lives trying to be God, God of our lives. And yet here was the son of God, you know, part of himself, part of the Godhead, dying and putting himself in our place and going through all of that so that the very people who have been trying to get rid of him can have him (laughs) I just think it's just so amazing isn't it like that is love I was really struck as well by the the two you know the two the criminals either side of Jesus they've seen the same thing haven't they they've both seen Jesus's incredible um love and they've heard his words of forgiveness and yet their responses are just totally opposite aren't they and one is mocking right up until the end, having seen all that. But the other really repents, doesn't he? And oh, I guess that when you were saying there, Helen, we want to be God, the criminal owns his own mess, doesn't he? And is prepared to say, I'm getting what I deserve here. This My death here is just and right because I am sinful. And yet this man has done nothing wrong. And I, I just thought that was a little beautiful vignette of what it means to accept what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Is to own our own mess and look to him as the perfect one. Um, which, yeah, amazingly then Jesus can say to that guy on the cross, today you're with me forever in paradise. Yeah, which essentially in saying you're, you will be with me in paradise, he's saying you you will be made righteous. Um, and it does, it does, it, he always, we've, we've said this throughout this study, we need to have a response to Jesus. This isn't just a nice story that we can read and then walk away from unchanged, like walking away from it unchanged is rejecting it. Um, And being changed by it means something as well for our lives. Sometimes I, I worry that, that people read this and just think it's a nice story, but it does. Jesus has a claim on us. And if we really read it for what it is, then it can, you know, it changes our life forever. Great. Thank you, ladies. Uh, Join us again next week as we continue in Uncover. Bye.